my mother, um, who, you know, my mother was all of five feet tall. If you ever met her, you would have thought she was seven feet tall. She was an incredible woman. She had two goals in her life. Um, she was a breast cancer researcher. Her goal was to end breast cancer and raise her two daughters. Well, she got cancer. And she ultimately passed away from cancer. But if you have ever had the unfortunate experience of going through the healthcare system with someone who has an acute illness, I'm gonna tell you what that is. It is having a doctor say to you, have you heard of the term anticipatory grief? Which you hadn't heard before, but when you hear it, it makes perfect sense. Which means you're starting already to grieve the loss of someone that is still around. You have the experience of going in and out of hospitals, helping someone who is frail and weak in and out of cars to get into a hospital. You look at medical charts and sometimes the medicine jives, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes people are paying attention to this is the medication that causes drowsiness they don't want or pain that they, they can't bear. You go through the process of worrying about, is there something I can cook that will make you be able to eat and hold down? You go through the process of being concerned that somebody who was on chemotherapy, are there clothes, can I get you something that's soft enough that you can wear that will not irritate your skin? Now, thankfully, our mother had Medicare. But for people who are going through this process, which they are every day in America, for them to also have to be concerned about how they're going to pay that bill is unconscionable. And that's how I feel about this subject. Cost should not be the barrier to receiving the care that will relieve you of pain or help improve your quality of life. And we've got to get this right. Welcome back to Podcast for the People. I'm Natali. And I'm Noemi. We just wanted to thank everyone for all of your support. Um, we launched episode one last week, and the response was pretty overwhelming. Thank you for supporting us and for supporting Kamala. Um, today, we're going to discuss healthcare. I think we can all agree that the state of healthcare in this country is lacking and needs to change. There's a lot of personal anecdotes that I can share about how broken the system is, but one that was really, really strange and crazy to me was last year, one of my friends fainted in our house and we had to call the paramedics and they came to check her out and stuff and they were like, okay, we need to go to the hospital. And before putting her in the ambulance, they said, wait, does she have insurance? And we were like, what do you mean, does she have insurance? Like, she needs to go to the hospital. And they were like, no, because you know, if she doesn't have insurance, they're gonna send her a bill for like $5,000. And I was like, what, in what universe do we live in where you have to ask if this person has insurance to get their life saved, essentially, it was crazy to me. Yeah, no, that's insane. And I've heard that story from multiple people. So personally, I'm enrolled in a plan through the marketplace that cost me about $160 a month. And it actually comes with an $8,000 deductible. So essentially, Insane. yeah, essentially it doesn't cover me for anything until I hit $8,000. So I'm just not using it. I mean, besides some of the, you know, preventative measures that are included, it's like I'm paying for essentially nothing unless something really awful happens. And actually, I got to notice a couple of months ago that the plan is still increasing 20% next year. 20%? Yeah. And like what else increases by 20%? Definitely not my salary. No. <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. And it's just an $8,000 deductible. So the need for universal coverage is definitely, everybody knows we should have it. We're actually the only OECD country to not have it. 
Um, and if you haven't heard about the OECD, it's an organization, it's called the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It includes 36 countries around the globe, like Australia, France, um, a lot of Western Europe, Canada, all those countries. And we are the only one to not have a form of universal health care. Right. And there's a very common misconception because you hear a lot of the candidates saying Medicare for all, Medicare for all, and saying that that's the only way to achieve that goal, which is actually not necessarily the truth and not necessarily that pure form of Medicare for all that is being advertised as the only Medicare for all. Right. That's not the only way to achieve universal coverage, which I think is an attainable goal. Exactly. And even within those OECD countries, a ton of them have a form of public uh, plan plus private insurance. So it's not like Medicare for all is what other countries have anyway. Right. And I mean, it's not an easy thing to fix. And if you go on Kamala's website, she says in her plan in the very first sentence, one of the problems with our politics is that it often demands 60 second sound bites or slogans to answer complex questions. And that's something where I think we've lost a lot of people in this healthcare conversation, mm -hmm. because if you can't explain it in one sentence, they're like, oh, no, that's not going to work. Exactly. But when have we ever solved a legitimate issue with a one sentence answer? Exactly. And I mean, healthcare is so complex that you would definitely need some policy research to come to a conclusion and figure out how to pay for it to make it an actual policy and not just a soundbite. Right. So actually, I'm glad that you said how we're going to pay for it, because we want to take a few minutes just to delve into Kamala Harris's plan specifically, because there's been a ton of misinformation surrounding it. And I just want to give a quick rundown of what the plan actually is. So I do want to start off with how are we going to pay for it? Because I know um, some people, a lot of people are, are very focused on that. And I don't mm -hmm. want you to listen to the entire thing thinking in your mind, oh, well, how are we going to pay for it? Well, we're going to tell you. Yes. Um, so Senator Sanders has put forward actually a number of ways to pay for his plan. You know, he's the one that really pushed the, con the healthcare conversation forward. So we'll start with how he thinks he should pay for it. Um, he proposes a version of Medicare for all that only has a public plan. And so to pay for it, he includes an income-based premium paid by the employers, higher taxes on the top 1%, and taxing capital gains at the same rate as ordinary income, which is essentially when you make a stock trade, if, you, if there's a gain on it, it would be taxed at the same way as an, you know, your regular income. But um, his plan also includes taxing household making over $29,000 a year, an additional 4% income-based premium. So that may not sound like a lot when you, you, know, you hear 4%, but actually for a family or person making 50K, you would end up paying an extra $2,000 a year on healthcare. So on top of every other expense that you already have. Right? So this is 2000 it, It's an extra tax bill of $2,000. So, for example, you know, for, if you don't have any insurance, that may actually sound great. For example, I mentioned I have an $8,000 deductible. $2,000 would definitely be amazing. But when I had good healthcare a couple of years ago, I only paid about $80 a month. So... $80 a month versus $2,000 a year. Right. And also, you don't know what the plan would be, right? It would be the public option. Um, I really had great insurance when I only paid $80 a month. So I would not have been thrilled with that extra tax bill. And people think that you once you pay that extra $2,000, then everything else is free from there on out, exactly. which is actually not the case at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and I should mention that Kamala's plan does exempt households making under $100,000 a year from this tax increase. And that income threshold is actually higher for middle class families who live in high cost areas. So like New York, San Francisco, instead of that 4% income based premium, 
she would tax Wall Street stock trades, bond trades, and derivative transactions. So that would just kind of work out to be like a $2 fee on a $1,000 trade by investors and big banks. Offshore corporate income will be taxed at the same rate as domestic corporate income. So that would essentially end foreign tax shelters. And together, those proposals would raise over $2 trillion over 10 years. Exactly. So now what does the plan actually cover, right? That's important to know. So under a Harris administration, Medicare for All would cover all medically necessary services, including ER visits, doctor visits, vision, dental, hearing aids, mental, mental health, and substance abuse disorder treatment, as well as comprehensive reproductive health care services. And it would also include telehealth and patient program to help people identify the right doctor and understand how to navigate the healthcare system. So actually, I really like the telehealth option. Um, if you live in a rural area where your doctor may be an hour one way and the pharmacy may be an hour the other direction, or maybe you're working like a 12-hour shift and you just need a prescription that you know you have already had in the past, you can just call and then they can send a prescription to your pharmacy and you can pick it up from there. And that's actually something I did have with uh, one of my previous plans. And I really enjoy that. I think telehealth is awesome. And I also am on a plan that is through the exchange, thanks to Obamacare. Um, and I love the telehealth option as well because I don't even have to go in to get certain prescriptions filled. I just send them a message and within 24 hours, they're like, okay, it's ready for pickup. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great option, honestly, for a wide range of people. Yeah. Um, the frustrating thing about prescription drugs, though, is, of course, the cost, as everyone knows. So we actually learned that 30% of Americans today don't take their medication as directed because they can't afford the cost. And 20% of Americans report having trouble paying for basic necessities due to those prescription drug costs. So I was prescribed when I was a teenager and had horrible skin. They prescribed me <laughs> an ointment that was over $400, which I didn't find out until I was already standing at the checkout at CVS. That's and the girl, Right, and the girl looked at me and she was like, I don't think you want to pay $400 for this. And I'm like, of course I don't want to pay $400 for this. Mm -hmm. So she ended up offering me a generic alternative, which was only $25. So I'm like, what on earth could have possibly been in the one that was prescribed to me that inflated the cost by like $375 essentially? Yeah. And I checked the label and the ingredients were the same. So pretty much you're paying for just the name. Right. Um, and I actually went to India after that and I found that same exact ointment for $2. Yes, and honestly, I'm not surprised because ointments, skin ointments usually are like two or three euros in France. I actually have a very similar story to you. When I had just started to wear contacts about a couple of years ago, they didn't really fit my eyes, I realized later. So I went um, to the eye doctor and they prescribed me some drops. Then I went to Walgreens and the drops were $172. I did buy them because, you know, it's my eyes and I want to protect <laughs> them. But I actually checked how much they were in France because, you know, yeah. eye drops. It's essentially water and some medicine. So in France, those eye drops were $3. Well, these pharmaceutical companies do spend a ton of money on advertising. And they actually spend almost as much money on advertising as they do on research and development. So um, Senator Harris's plan would end the tax loophole for advertising expenses, especially for direct-to-consumer advertising expenses. So in 1997, pharmaceutical companies in the U.S. were spending $1.3 billion on 79,000 ads. Now jump to 2016, nearly 20 years later, they were spending $6 billion on 4.6 million ads. Now this is crazy. This is insane. So the U.S. and New Zealand are the only two countries 
where direct-to-consumer advertising of prescription drugs is allowed. Right. So my cousins would come from India and see all of these ads for medication, and they would be like, why are you advertising medicine? It's extremely weird, and you're not a doctor. Your doctor should prescribe you your medicine and should inform you. It should not be a TV commercial while you're watching Desperate Housewives that's telling you yeah. what you should take, right? Right, and then at the end they say, ask your doctor about blah, blah, blah. Right. Why do I have to ask my doctor? If my doctor wanted to prescribe that to me, he, he would. would. Exactly. Um, so under her plan, a prescription drug's fair price would be no higher than 100% of the average price for that drug in comparable OECD countries, such as, as you mentioned earlier, Canada, the UK, France, Germany, Japan, Australia. Um, and Health and Human Services will update the fair price for each drug, at least annually, you know, with the caps for inflation. I have a lot of family members that require medication pretty much just to survive on a daily basis. And they end up staying in these horrendous jobs that take advantage of them because they know that person, these people need to stay in this work environment in order to continue to receive medications and prescriptions through the health insurance that is provided by the employer. Mm -hmm. So they're able to take advantage of their employees just because they know that, okay, well, you can't really quit because you need me right and it's just horrendous so also and under her plan that would decouple the employer from your health care though they can still offer a private plan through the system but yes not it would not be tied to it which would also be great for entrepreneurship right like i have a lot of friends in their late 20s early 30s that want to change career direction and they want to maybe start their company or do consulting and they end up being scared because they just don't have health care anymore or it's costing them between two and five hundred dollars a month and actually, I have a few friends now that are uninsured because of that. Because yeah. they just don't want to spend $500 a month. So they're just, you know, not having insurance and hoping for the best. But it's definitely not something that you can do if you have fa a family, if you have kids, or if you're older. Right. And health insurance should be a right, not a luxury, you know. Right. It should not be $500 a month. So what's something that's great about her plan, too, is the phase-in period. So upon passing the plan, all Americans will immediately have the ability to buy into Medicare similar to the introductory buy-in provided in Sanders plan. So like I just mentioned, if you don't have insurance, you will be able to buy in right away. Uh, seniors will be able to keep their Medicare, but immediately have dental, vision, and hearing aids covered. Medicare Advantage plan would continue in uninterrupted, so no one would lose access to coverage during the transition period. Um, and the expanded Medicare system would have a 10-year phase-in period, newborn and uninsured people would automatically be enrolled, like I just mentioned. You would have an opt-out provision for families with employer-sponsored insurance that they would like to keep. And this would also give time for doctors to get into the system and do all the, you know, technology infrastructure necessary to get into the plan. Um, Medicaid would transition to the Medicare for All system that way. And the expanding the transition period window is also great to lower the cost of the overall program, figure out who needs it, and this way it's not a rushed type of program, which probably would fail. This is such a complex issue, you need time to figure out how it's going to work. Right, and a couple of the other candidates have also proposed plans where the window's like two years or four years, and that's just such an accelerated rate. There's bound to be chaos involved in that. The big thing about her Medicare for All plan that separates her from some of the other candidates who are running is the ability to preserve choice. 
right? So her plan will still allow a private option. So private insurers will be allowed to offer Medicare plans, but they must adhere to very strict requirements regarding costs and benefits. So that is essentially how private Medicare plans work today. And those plans already, like Medicare Advantage, they cover a third of Medicare seniors and operate within the system. So essentially, nothing crazy, nothing new that we haven't heard before, just extending this to everybody across the board. Exactly. And if you have an employer-sponsored plan through you know, your employer and you like it, you would be able to keep it. There would not be any type of restriction um, as to if you have to enroll in the public plan. And also what's really important is for any type of unions where they have negotiated healthcare within their compensation package, they would be able to keep it. Right. And one thing that a lot of people who aren't very familiar with unions and how they negotiate is so if you're in a union, when your time comes to renegotiate your contract, you have the option to negotiate for better health care or for a better salary. And oftentimes people will negotiate for better benefits and stay at their current mm -hmm pay rate. So that's why a lot of unions are very into this idea of having choice because, you know, they've made sacrifices to be able to get the care that they have now. And we'll just play you a little clip from a town hall that Kamala did recently. This is with United Here workers at the Culinary Union headquarters in Las Vegas, Nevada. But in particular, the health coverage and the insurance that you have negotiated and bargained and sacrificed to get, I will not take that away. So on the debate stage, there are a lot of people talking about Medicare for all. Well, the difference between what they're talking about and my policy, I'm not going to get rid of private insurance. I'm not getting rid of private insurance. And it is 226, it is Unite Here that helped me in, in terms of thinking about what makes for the better process and the better policy. I had you in mind, because I know what you've given up to get that coverage. I know what you've given Okay, so one thing I want to point out here is note the applause that she receives when she says that she's not going to take away the insurance that they negotiated for. So clearly, that's an issue that a lot of union workers feel strongly about, and that is one of the largest unions in the state of Nevada as well. And this is important because when you negotiate your compensation package, which you know may include your salary, your health care, your vacation, your sick days, it's not for one year. Most unions is for three, for five, for seven years with a scale of how much your salary is going to increase or stay flat, how your benefits are going to change. So it is not a one-year issue, which is why having a longer phasing period is perfect because by the time they renegotiate, they know what they would want for their health care, essentially. Right. Um, and her plan has already been endorsed by someone who has experience in this area. So Kathleen Sebelius, who was the former Health and Human Services Secretary as well as one of the architects of Obamacare. She actually came forth and endorsed Kamala's plan. She said this plan builds on the progress we made in the Affordable Care Act. We need innovative ideas like this, and Senator Harris's plan is a smart way to get to Medicare for all. And I don't take that endorsement lightly because this is a person that has already been able to affect change in this area. 
So she kind of knows what she's talking about because she's done it. So she can kind of see the viability of what this plan is and across the board what everyone else has presented as well. And that's really important because it's wonderful to have these great ideas, which I think a lot of candidates do. But at the end of the day, if you can't pass it through a Republican-led Senate or whatever the situation may be at that time, it's kind of pointless. Yes, it's a complete moot point. And actually, you know, going back to your point about what have you done in the past that proved that you will do that in the future... So Kamala actually has experience fighting on this issue. So in July 2012, when she was the California Attorney General, she recovered $23.5 million in a settlement with McKesson Corporation, which is one of the country's largest drug wholesalers. So they had inflated the price of her prescription drugs by as much as 25%, causing the state's Medicaid program to overpay millions of dollars in pharmacy reimbursement over a span of eight years. So this was essentially a misuse of state public resources, which are already scarce to begin with. In uh, one month later, in August of 2012, she won a $323 million settlement from SCAN, which is the Senior Care Action Network that defrauded elderly Californians and people with disabilities. So a portion of the money from that settlement went to the federal government because, as you know, the federal government partially funds Medicare and Medicaid, and the remainder of that money went back to the state of California. So you know how her slogan is for the people. Mm -hmm. That's a great example of her doing work for the people. Exactly. So I think her plan is the best I have read. But let's also discuss some of the issues that we have seen in other candidates' plan and also the media bias that comes with that. So if you remember from our first episode, which was entirely on media bias and coverage, this the same thing has happened regarding the, her plan for healthcare. So for example, Sanders' plan would increase taxes on the middle class. As we mentioned earlier, it would add about 4% income tax to anyone making over $29,000. I don't think this has been reflected in the media as well as it should. This is a big deal, a 4% extra income tax. So Harris was criticized for straying from her first endorsement of his plan to include consideration for union and general choice. So she was called a flip-flopper, but really, she just had a team study the issue and realized that this was a great consideration. We had to include union-negotiated plan, and this is how she changed her plan. But now Sanders is himself saying that we should include an option for unions. And instead of saying that he flip-flopped, they're saying he tweaked his healthcare plan. Right. So frustrating. But it does bear mentioning as well that she did credit him in her plan that she introduced. She said Bernie really did a great job setting it up, but she felt that there were ways that she needed to make it better. So mm -hmm. it's not like she kind of, you know, stole his plan and then went and didn't give him any credit for it. She acknowledged the big role that he played in it and then made a few tweaks on it and then got really like dragged for it. Yeah. And actually, she has credited him multiple times during debates, uh, during interviews, interviews she was doing. Yes, many, many times. So uh, Warren was actually questioned whether or not she would raise taxes on the middle class multiple times. It has been happening for months now. As of today, she still has not answered directly. Um, we do know that her new plan would involve passing immigration reform in order to fund her $20.5 trillion operation. $20.5 So it's ambitious, but it's also unrealistic, and we really don't know how she would pay for it. Yeah, and honestly, I know there are a lot of candidates that haven't come out and said how they're going to pay for it, but the reason that we bring this particular one up is because, can you imagine Kamala Harris on the debate stage dodging a question, essentially, about something that's, that has been voted as one of the most important issues to voters today? Right. Being like, oh, I don't know, or not having an answer. It would be a completely different story at this point. She wouldn't be even considered one of the front runners. No, it's really m making Double something. Standard. 
Yes, and it's making something out of thin air. You know, on paper, you can create whatever you want, but A, are you going to be able to pass it? And B, are you going to be able to fund it? At least the majority funding it. Kamala is also very clear about the difference about between her plan and the other Medicare for All proposal. Let's start with something you mentioned, and that's health care. Yeah. Uh, you were an original supporter of Senator okay. Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All. Uh, during the course of the yeah. campaign so far, there have been some exchanges right. with you about whether you thought that that should or shouldn't include uh, private insurance. But in the end, in right. the summer, you came out with a plan you're calling Medicare for All, but it would keep private health insurance. I just right. want to say that Senator Sanders' campaign is saying this is not really Medicare for all. They say you have folded to the interests of the health insurance industry. Well, they're, they're wrong. Um, I have always supported Medicare for all. I, I was very happy to sign on to Bernie's bill, and I give Bernie, frankly, a lot of credit for moving the conversation to where it is now. But I thought we could do better. And in particular, I travel the country, and, and there are lots of folks out there who want Medicare for all. They want to know everyone is covered, that we bring costs down, that pre-existing conditions will not be a ban to access to health care. But people also don't want us to take away their choice. And similar to Medicare right now, the current form of Medicare, people have the choice to get private plans in addition to the public plans that are available. So what I am proposing is Medicare for all. And well, in my plan, as distinguished from Bernie and, and, and Warren's plan, yes, pri the, people do have a choice of getting a private or a public plan, but it is going to yeah. cover everyone. It's going to bring down cost. And Judy, I should also mention, I'm not going to increase taxes on middle class families. So her proposal essentially extends Medicare as it stands, which does have a private option to everyone. Yeah, so healthcare is a very important issue. It's a very personal issue. Everybody has a thought on it, whether they like their insurance, whether they really dislike it. A lot of people want a form of Medicare for all, but I think what's really important is for people to share Kamala's plan. Uh, it has been researched and reviewed. All the detail is on her website, and we really hope that this was helpful. If uh, you have any questions, let us know. We'll be able to piggyback on anything we've said today. And one of the things that we really wanted to accomplish with this particular episode, I know it's shorter than what some of our other ones have and will be, we know there's been a lot of confusion based on what the media has pushed as their narrative about what her health care plan actually is. So here you go. This was a very, very quick overview of what it is. Her website, it goes into exceptional detail. There will be no questions mm -hmm. left unanswered if you go to KamalaHarris.org slash issues. And as I said last week, while you're there, if you feel like making a donation, that would be really appreciated. Um, having staff on the ground is one of the ways that we are going to win this election and very key part of the process. See you next time.